Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. As you're doing that, think with me about what it means when we speak of a guilty conscience. You know, it it is, after all, a huge theme in in literature. From Macbeth's blood-stained hands that would ne'er come clean, to Alyosha in the Brothers Karamazov, who, who realized that although he didn't kill his father, he could have, so... He's no less guilty than the brother who did. Or, or Augustine, in his confessions, stealing his neighbor's pears for no other reason than he wanted to do something wrong. Or my wife and I recently finished watching all the seasons of a TV show that dealt with politics. And, and she pointed out to me that one of the, that, that one of the themes in the, in the show was that all the characters kind of began idealistic and with a sense of purity, and yet one by one, You saw them stained with some sort of compromise. But we can be thankful that it's only, you know, politicians and literary figures who have that problem, right? You know, they're the only ones who who lie and, and take advantage of others and have some sort of secret agenda. Of course, that's not true. We all do, right? And to be human is to experience some sense of guilt, some sense of uncleanness, some pollution somewhere in our lives. And think about it. Would you want every thought that entered your mind, even this morning, to just be displayed on the screens for us all to read? Yeah, no, you wouldn't. I wouldn't. And we know that. It's been said that the most pressing problem, the most pressing existential crisis that we face is the question, what am I going to do about my guilt? And I think you could argue that all the perplexities that we find ourselves in, including our posture towards death, is really based on that guilt. How are you, knowing that you're dirty, going to become clean? How do I get rid of my guilty conscience? Well, if you've been here with us for a while, you know that we're working through the book of Hebrews and that it deals extensively with the topic of guilt, atonement, covering. It answers this question. And if you remember from last week, we looked at the fact that the old sacrifices in the Old Testament did not work to get rid of sin. And we also saw that the sacrifice of Christ did work to get rid of sin, And we saw that this has massive implications for our future. It's not just that salvation is something we look to in the past. There's a future to it as well. Well, This morning, we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And this passage continues in the same trajectory, but goes also deeper. And it, it gives us an even deeper contrast between the salvation we have in Christ on the one hand and that old system of of the law and the sacrifices on the other. And it makes also, this passage makes some important connections with the whole book, and I think it makes it personal. This passage has what I think is, is my favorite verse in the book of Hebrews, so we can see that there. Well, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, let me read it. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage, and not just understand it in our head. Oh, Lord, write it in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'd affect our mind, our hearts, our emotions, our will, that we would delight to do your will. Oh, Lord, teach us more about Christ. Let us fall in love more and more with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you see in this passage how it addresses that problem of a guilty conscience. Did you notice as I read it it, that you, you saw things like being made perfect, being cleansed from the consciousness of sin? It speaks of clearly being sanctified. And all of this is so that we can draw near to God. It speaks of being able to come to him. Friends, my prayer this week is, I've been working through this book, this, this section, is that we would know how to resolve that, that pressing existential problem that we face, namely our guilt, and that we would therefore come before the throne of God freely. We would make our requests known to him that we, through our understanding of this passage, might have freedom and boldness to, be, to know God deeply and intimately. Now, for this to happen, I think we need to see three things in this passage. One, we need to see Christ's role 
in consummating God's redemptive plan. Second, we need to see how in this role he removes sin. And third, we need to see how he can do this because he is the perfect offering to make us perfect. So his role, his removal of sin, and then how he is perfect. Those three things. First, we see his role in consummating God's redemptive plan. Now, when I say that, I'm presuming that God has a plan, not just a whim, a plan to redeem his people. And we see in the way that this passage talks about the old and the new, that, and it contrasts the old and the new, that this plan extends well back into history over many years. Now, I've thought to myself from time to time, if I were God, I don't think I would have done it that way. I mean, I'm not a very patient person. Some of you are saying amen. Um, so if, if I were God and the fall of man had happened on Tuesday morning, I think I would have made it so Jesus had come and died by noon, rose again by evening, and then for dramatic tension, I might have waited till the next morning for his return. But God is much more patient than I am. And he is working out his plan over millennia. And friends, that is good news for us because it has allowed time for us to be saved. And even even more significantly, through the unfolding plan, we see the glory of Christ in ways that we never would have if it was simply a one-time thing. The, The plan unfolds throughout history, so we see a contrast in the way it develops, and that highlights the unique glory of Christ. So look there at verse 1. It tells us that the law, by which he means the sacrifices in the law, explains that later, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It's a shadow, not the true form, and that's why it cannot make anyone perfect. The point is, the law is a shadow. Christ is the substance. He is what the shadow is of. Therefore, Christ can make us perfect. And the point of application for us in in the author explaining this is that we, therefore, must give Christ the proper weight and importance in our lives, given his climactic role in God's redemptive plan. In other words, Christ has a preeminent role in God's plan, so we ought to have a preeminent place in our hearts. The people back then, when the author wrote this, were tempted to forsake Christ as the way they would get rid of their guilt, and instead to try, emphasis on try, not succeed, to have their guilt remitted through the Old Testament law. And the author here is saying, guys, that that won't work. That's going backwards. Do a, do a thought experiment with me here for a second. Imagine that you are waiting for a loved one in the airport. They've been gone for months. You're excited about their return. Now, imagine also that the airport has a lot of windows, as airports often do. And the sun is low, casting long shadows inside the airport. That happened when I was in BWI last. I remember being struck by... How unexpected it was and strangely beautiful to see long shadows inside a building. It's kind of interesting. Well, imagine you're seeing that. You're you're looking at the floor at these interesting shadows. And then there appears in your view the, the, 
what is unmistakably the shadow of the person that you are longing to see. What do you do? Well, you, you run over and you, you throw yourself on the floor trying to hug the shadow, right? No. No, you, you turn from the shadow. You're thankful for the shadow because the shadow points to the person. But you turn from the shadow and run to the person. And in the same way, we would be colossally stupid to leave Christ for that which is only a shadow of Christ. Now, friends, I'm not saying that we should neglect, therefore, the Old Testament. Obviously, we should pay attention to the Old Testament because notice how much of the Old Testament the author of Hebrews has put in his sermon. The preacher of Hebrews has put in his sermon. It's kind of odd preaching from the book of Hebrews because I'm, I'm technically in the New Testament, but it feels as if I'm in the Old Testament because of how much I have to go back there to explain what this letter is trying to say. The Old Testament is incredibly important. The author gives attention to it, and so should we. But notice, the author, when he's reading the, the sacrificial system and the law, he's reading it as a shadow pointing to the reality, and we ought to do the same. Sort of like if you've seen one of Rembrandt's sketches of one of his paintings. You can go online and you can see that. His sketches are so crude. He just like draws circles for the people's heads and gestures for their body and the direction of the light. But then the painting itself is stunning. And yet after seeing the painting, you can go back and look at the sketch and you can still see something of the master's hand in the sketch. And that's like reading back into the Old Testament. We don't have two different gods, one from the old who did the old, one from the who who wrote the new. There was a a heresy in the early church that tried to assert that. Church was really clear. No, there's there's one God and who he unfolds one plan of redemption. But it is in such a way that there is a gradual unfolding of it, so the true glory is revealed at the end. And we can go back and read at the beginning and trace that glory through making the glory of Christ more clear. Now, I bet that most of us are not trying to go back and and get rid of our guilt by sacrificing animals. We we probably aren't doing that. But I bet in our hearts we can relate to that illustration of, of hugging the shadow instead of the true thing. I know I can. We don't often see the beauty of Christ as we should, and therefore we run to lesser things. We try to get our guilt taken, getting, gotten rid of by looking in the wrong direction. And what about you? Unless Christ has a preeminent place in your hearts that corresponds to his preeminent role in God's redemptive plan, you'll never really understand his work for you. Well, what did he do? What did Christ do in this redemptive plan? Well, this is point number two. He removes sin. Christ's role as the remover of sin becomes clear as we look at this section a little bit more carefully and we see contrasting bookends. As we look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, we see contrasting bookends on either side of the passage, where he's dealing with a similar theme in a way that, that, that contrasts with each other. That, this is a bit abstract and confusing if I said, as I've said it there, but let me explain. I think you can get it. In, in the beginning of this, this first bookend, 
beginning of chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Notice there, look, look there at it, you'll, you'll understand. He's talking about how the Old Testament system makes us remember sin even more. We have more reminders of our sin because of the Old Testament system. And his argument goes like this. Verse 1 tells us that the sacrifices demanded by the law cannot make anyone perfect. And proof that they cannot make anyone perfect is that they have to be offered again and again every year. See, the author basically asks the rhetorical question in verse 2, if the sacrifices had been able to make perfect, why would they have to be sacrificed, offered again and again? Obviously, they don't make anyone perfect then. His assumption that runs throughout this whole section, the whole Bible really, is that the only way for a sacrifice to make us perfect and complete is if that sacrifice itself is perfect and complete. And if it was perfect and complete, it would be offered as sort of a one-and-done, finished reality. You wouldn't need to do it over and over again. But in the Old Testament system, you have to do it over and over again. Therefore, the conclusion is that the sacrifices were not perfect. They were not complete. See the logic? And what that means for for the people back then and for us then is said in verse 3 that because they had to be offered over and over again, they just remind you of your sin again and again. I mean, you might come to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament thinking, oh, this is going to get rid of my guilt. This is going to make me clean. And then when you do it every year, you realize, no, I'm more aware of my guilt because I have to do it over and over again. The sacrifices, like the entire law, burn in your mind the reality that you're guilty. And to participate in the sacrificial system is to be reminded rather gruesomely and vividly that that your life was so bad that the death of another had to occur so that you could live. The whole temple system reminded you that God is holy and that you are not. So the first bookend of this section is that the the Old Covenant system of sacrifice presents us with a a reminder, a remembrance of sin. Now, let's look at the end of the section, the other bookend. We see, once again, the theme of remembering, but in a rather different light. Look there at verse 17. This is the quote from from Jeremiah 31. A little background might be helpful. Jeremiah 31, we looked at that several weeks ago. It's a very important uh, chapter for the whole Bible, and especially for the author of Hebrews here, because it's a pivotal place in the Old Testament where the people of God have failed to live up to the law. They rebelled against God, and now God is turned against them, and they're being sent away from God's presence into the exile because they've broken the covenant. But God, in his kindness in this passage, promises a new covenant, a new way of relating to God. And the author of Hebrews is saying that this new way of relating to God is Christ. He is the new covenant. And then the author of Hebrews quotes one aspect of this new covenant foretold in Jeremiah 31, where God says, look there at verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Remember no more. That contrasts rather starkly with what we saw at the beginning of this section, the first bookend, 
where the Old Covenant presents a continual reminder of our sin. The Old Covenant fails because the perpetual sacrifices don't take away sin. They make us more conscious of it. The New Covenant succeeds because Christ consummates God's plan in His once-for-all death, taking away our sin so that God doesn't remember it anymore. See, see, remembering is the common theme in both bookends. The first is that we remember our sin. The second is that God doesn't. I love the unexpected twist in that argument. You know, if we look at the first bookend about us remembering our sin, we might think that the, the second would be about us not remembering it. But actually, he gives us something far better, something we really need. The deepest problem is not simply that we are conscious of our sin. Our deepest problem is that God is. And and without his forgiveness, we we would be lost. We would experience God's wrath. We would have no hope. Forgiveness is a big part of this. Verse 18 says, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And the fact that Christ's death is is finished, proves that his people have truly been forgiven. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about my journey in coming to understand forgiveness more. Some of you might find this amusing. I remember first hearing the gospel when I was about five. I don't think I believed it at the time. But in my five-year-old understanding, the way it was explained to me was that Jesus had come to, to do something so that God doesn't see our sin And I thought I would be okay as long as I didn't accidentally remind God of what I had done before. I had to be careful in my prayers not to let on that I had done anything wrong. Of course, that's not true. God knows what we've done wrong, but he forgives it. And another point that was significant for me in understanding forgiveness was that after I'd been a Christian for a while, I was in seminary. And working through, you know, my, my Greek studies, as, as, one, as one does, and I stumbled over the fact that the same Greek word is used for both forgiveness and divorce. That's a clear reason why you need to pay attention to context when you read the Bible. Otherwise, you come up with strange things, like Jesus saying, only in the case of adultery can you forgive your spouse. That doesn't make any sense at all. Or the, the paralytic's friends lowering him through the roof to have Jesus divorce him. I mean, clearly doesn't make any sense. But you can see why the same word is used for both divorce and forgive, right? I mean, to divorce is tragically to end a relationship. It is to send someone away, to say, you're not bound to me anymore. I'm not responsible for you. Your actions have no effect on me. In the eyes of the law, we are not one, but we are two. We are separate. That's so sad when it happens in a marriage. But that's exactly what we want to have happen in our relationship with our sin. We don't want to be considered with it any longer. We don't want any responsibility for it. We don't want it to be bound to us. It's sort of like um, that part in The Lord of the Rings when Gollum says to his evil self, go away and never come back. But of course, he does it in his own golem strength, so it doesn't work. But what God has separated, no man will be able to join back together. 
Christ having died on the cross once for all, and God's perfect justice having been satisfied, and us having received this forgiveness on the basis of faith, God pronounces us entirely free from our guilt and our sin. We may live in its shadow no more. It's a beautiful reality. Friends, what do you do with that forgiveness? Well, the answer from this passage is that we ought to use that forgiveness to draw near to God. Verse 1 tells us that the law could not perfect those who draw near to God. And the idea of drawing near to God occurs throughout the book of Hebrews. It's, it's really based on that Old Testament temple motif where the worshiper would bring his or her sacrifice you know, to come into God's presence. And what we see here is that those Old Testament sacrifices didn't really work to bring anyone into the presence of God. But the death of Christ does. And the presumption here is that we were created to draw near to God. We exist to come to Him. That's what we ought to do. And without this understanding of forgiveness, there's no way we will ever be able to do it. Because we will conceive of God as our enemy. Of course, Scripture tells us that we ought to love our enemy. But we can only love our enemy when we entrust ourselves to God. If God, though, is our enemy, well, we have no hope at all. We are utterly doomed. And a a principle of self-preservation will kick in and we'll just hightail it out of God's presence as fast as we can. That's what Adam and Eve did when they were conscious of their sin. They knew they had done something wrong, and they they fled and hid from God's presence. And so often we spend our lives in a continual state of hiding. We hope that if we hide our sin from others, and even from ourselves, God might not see it either. But that's self-deception. It would be easier to keep an angry elephant hidden in a bungalow than it would be to hide our sin from God. And the guilt that we feel now is only a shadow of the true guilt that we would feel when we stand before the holy God on that great day of judgment. And all self-deception fails us. And there is no escaping the burning holiness of God. God is a consuming fire. And we will be undone and have no defense. The only way to escape that wrath then is to believe in Jesus now. To trust in Him for forgiveness. Well, friends, have you done that? Have you, have you looked to Christ for forgiveness? The last thing we see here is that he is able to remove our sin. He has the, the, the role in God's plan to remove our sin because he is a perfect offering who is able to make us perfect. So thinking about the big picture of this passage, we have the two bookends of this passage that contrast the two realities about remembering our sin. On the one hand, we're conscious of it. We remember it. On the other hand, God doesn't. Praise God for that. And the middle of this passage explains how it is that we get from the first one to the second. And it is through the perfect offering of Christ. And why did it have to be Jesus who died on the cross for our sins? Look there at verse 4. This doesn't answer the question. actually raises it even more so. Verse 4 tells us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If it is impossible 
for their death to get rid of sin. What is it about Jesus that makes it so his death does take away sin? Why is his offering of himself perfect and therefore final? Well, the offering of the the bulls and goats, not. Well, to answer this question, the author turns once again to the Old Testament. Surprised? Probably not by this point. Look there at verses 5 through 7. You'll notice in your Bibles that they are a quote from Psalm 40. Psalm 40 is what Steve read earlier. It's one of those places in the Old Testament where even though the sacrificial system is the law, okay, they've got to obey the sacrificial system. They know it. They've got to offer the animals as they're told. Yet, Psalm 40 is one of those windows into the fact that at the end of the day, God really isn't interested in those those animal carcasses. What he wants is their hearts. He wants them to love him, to live their lives for him. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is your reasonable act of worship. So the offering that God wants is a heart that delights to do his will. But of course, we've all chosen not to do his will, right? And that's why we're in this predicament. But Jesus comes to earth as the perfect man to actually delight to do God's will from the depth of his being. Look there at verse 5. This is Psalm 40 put in the words of Jesus. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offering you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, again, this is the word, this is in Christ's mouth, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What's significant there is that Jesus has come in a body to do God's will. And this provides for two needs. One, God needs a blood offering to cover over sin. And the animals don't don't cut it. Christ does. Second, God wants the hearts of his people to be for him. And simply going through the motions of an animal sacrifice doesn't get to the true heart of worship. But Jesus comes and he is both the blood sacrifice that can actually atone for sin because he says, a body you have prepared for me. So Jesus is is human as well as divine. So when he dies on the cross, it is his death as a, a human taking our place. But yet because he is God... He is of, it is a death of infinite value. He meets the requirements of a substitute who can take our place. But, but not only is he just that technically right sacrifice, Jesus also comes to willingly give himself up to God. He has a will. He, he wills to do God's will. The animals didn't do that. No animal willingly crawled up on the altar to be a sacrifice. Jesus did. Verse tells us, verse 10 tells us that by his will we have been sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. See, the reason why Jesus is a perfect sacrifice has to do with his will and his body. He wills to offer himself as the perfect sacrifice in his body in our place. You know, sometimes Christians lack confidence that Christ has really truly 
atoned for their sin. They're really, truly covered and cleansed. Friends, if that's you, meditate here on the will and the body of Jesus. Meditate on the fact that Jesus has both a divine will and a human will. And when he offers himself to God, it's, it's as, a, as a human does. It's, it takes work. He, he fought to do it. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane when, when tears and blood flowed out. That was a fight worth doing because through that fighting to do God's will, he was securing your redemption. He delighted to do God's will. Through that human will, he offered himself to God in order to save you. Meditate on his desire to save you. His will to save you. Meditate on his body as as meaning that he is true humanity. This says, a body you have prepared for me. And that kind of indicates that perhaps, as Christ is talking, he is recognizing that he came before this body. The the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, existed prior to, to taking that body. But nevertheless, he came and took that body and died on the cross as the the perfect sacrifice, more than sufficient to cover over your sin. Friends, if you doubt that you're forgiven, it's probably because you have a diminished value of Christ. So go back and meditate on the value of Christ, and you'll see the fullness and the freeness of your forgiveness. It's also important to see here, and we're almost done, But it's important to see that not only does the death of Jesus have an effect upon God that is to satisfy his wrath against us, not only does Christ dying on the cross do something so that God isn't angry with us, it also does something to sanctify us. And that's what this passage points to as well. Verse 10 draws attention to it. Through your will... Um, he he says that it is through his will he offers up himself to sanctify us. To be sanctified is to be set apart, to be holy like God is holy. To be sanctified is to be able to say to God with all honesty, behold, I have come to do your will. And remember, God wants not only the blood sacrifice to satisfy his wrath, he also wants the hearts of his worshipers to be inclined towards him. He wants us to willingly come before him. He wants our lives. And Christ had that heart. He came willing to to sacrifice himself. But the offering of Christ does more than just satisfy God's wrath on our behalf. He then, through his perfect human will, shares that will with us so that we, as we participate with him, as we come in union with him, actually live our lives pleasing to God as well. Outside of Christ, we cannot have the same will that Christ has. Outside of Christ, we're hiding from God because we know His wrath is against us. He is our enemy, and we don't want to come to Him. But in Christ, we have forgiveness. And then we can come to Him. And when we come to Him, we can begin to share in His perfect will. We take on His characteristics. We become like Him. And notice that there is a process to this. He has perfected those who are being sanctified. 
That being sanctified indicates that this is not just a one-time thing. Oh, there's a one-time aspect to it. We are perfected, but then we are also being sanctified. This, I think, is my favorite verse in the, the book of Hebrews, in part because it once again confronts me with the reality that I don't do as God would do. You see, just as I would kind of have salvation plan all wrapped up within the space of two days, I'd also have our, our sanctification fully realized instantaneously, right? That's what I would do. But God is once again infinitely more patient than I am. And he wants there to be a process where we are, are perfected in Christ, forgiven, and then enter into this journey of being sanctified. And friends, we have to understand this so we don't become frustrated. Now, there's an important distinction distinction we need to make. We should never be content with sin in our lives. When we see it, uh, we should want to eradicate it. There's no safe, there should be no safe place for sin in our lives. We should always be on a search and destroy mission. But we should not resent the fact that our sanctification is a process. To do so would be to go against God's will. God's will is that we would be being sanctified. God's will is that the process of us becoming like Christ is just that, a process. We shouldn't resist it. We shouldn't resent it. We should be happy to do God's will, which is to participate in that process. Martin Luther, uh, the Protestant reformer, understood this so well. He said, I've read this to you before, but... I, for one, can't get enough of it. He said, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. It has not yet appeared what we will be, but we are pressing towards it. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Friends, our our lives, I think, would be changed if we really understood what this means. I wonder what areas in your life are discouraging you the most in your Christian growth. Is it that you keep getting angry and you wish it would stop and just when you think it is, it it hasn't? The anger comes back? Or, Or maybe you think that by now your desire to read God's Word would be more constant and it wouldn't be such a struggle to come into God, to God regularly in prayer and reading. Or maybe you wish that you could be you could stop being paralyzed by what others think of you. Or maybe you're falling into sexual temptation again and again. And maybe you wish, like I do, that that you had more boldness when talking about Christ with others. What I want to say to you from this passage is don't let the work that still yet needs to be done overshadow what God has already done. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So even though there's more work to do, it doesn't erase the fact that Christ's death has effected for you a final and perfect salvation. If you've trusted in Jesus, you are forgiven. And there's nothing you can do to be more forgiven or less forgiven. It's a one-time thing. That's the point. And you will not progress at all in this journey of becoming sanctified unless you look back at the absolute forgiveness and use that forgiveness as confidence to draw near to God where you experience His grace in your time of need. 
But maybe you're here this morning and you're a little too content with yourself. Maybe it doesn't bother you that you haven't spoken about Christ to anyone in months. Maybe your mind is filled with filth. You don't really care all that much. What I want to say to you is that the death of Christ is never about freedom to sin, but rather it's about freedom from sin. Christ died so that you could live a life holy and pleasing to God. And you need to get on board with what the death of Christ is actually about so you can live according to God's will. Well, I must conclude. I think what we see in this passage, for all its complexity, are two different ways of dealing with our guilt. One way is to use sacrifices that are insufficient and only remind us of our sin more and more. And whether those sacrifices are the Old Testament law or some other sacrifice that we generate on our own is irrelevant. It makes no difference. It won't work. The other way to deal with our guilt revolves around the person of Christ, whose death is the only way to deal with sin. He is entirely sufficient for everything we need. And we can find full forgiveness in him. My non-Christian friends who are here with us, why not trust in Christ? He's willing to save you. He's able to save you. Please believe in him. And to my Christian friends, it is so easy to let our focus drift from Christ, isn't it? I mean, the hymn that we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave my God I love. Take my heart, take and seal it, seal it, for thy courts above. Oh, let that be our prayer as we come again and again to Christ to claim the perfection that we have because of his once for all death in our place and then live our lives more and more sanctified, more and more according to God's will. Let's pray.